under my... <sighs> She's like, all falling out now, too. Anyway, good morning. A um, couple of announcements. Next Sunday, remember, after second service is our baptism. So if you would like to be baptized and you have not um, let Jen or I know, please do so um, after service today. And then remember, next Sunday evening at 6 p.m., we're going to have our uh, worship time out in the parking lot. So we'll get the uh, burn pits going again, and um, it's going to be a good time. I'm excited about that. And then also, just so you guys will be aware, sometime next month, I'm not sure exactly when, but we're going to be resuming our Wednesday night services and youth group and stuff. So um, Karen is very excited about that. Good job, Karen. So I'm uh, looking forward to that, kind of getting back on track a little bit. No. It's going to be good. Well, let's pray before we get into the Word this morning. Heavenly Father, we... Um, we're a needy people, Lord. We, uh, we just acknowledge that this morning. We need your strength. We need your touch in our lives. And we pray that as we, as we open your word this morning, that you'll speak to us, Lord, that you'll encourage us, that you'll minister, that you'll convict. Whatever it is that we need, whatever we need to hear from you, that we'll hear it through the power of your spirit and the teaching of your word this morning, Lord. We ask that in your name, Jesus. Amen. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. Remember some, um, some years ago, I heard John Corson tell this story. There was, uh, there was, you know, in early 1900s, a lot of people traveled by train. You know, there weren't Greyhound buses so much, and there weren't um, airplanes. And so he tells the story of this train that was traveling from Chicago to St. Louis. And this particular train, it happened to be traveling this time of year. It was a, it was a cold January, and there was a, a, a blizzard moving in. And so during the, the loading of a train, this mom gets on with two small children. And she tells the conductor, she says, I need to get off in Beaumont. And Beaumont, as it happens, was a, a very small town, and the train typically didn't even stop unless somebody specifically asked for it. The train would just, just keep right on going. So the lady tells the conductor, I need to get off on Beaumont. And this guy that was sitting next to the lady over her, and she said, hey, listen, the conductor gets busy sometimes, and he has a tendency to forget. So when we approach Beaumont, I'll tell you, so you know when to get off. So a little while later, the train stops after a few stops, and the guy says, um, all right, this is your stop, ma'am. And so she gets off, and she steps out into the middle of this just raging blizzard, and the train takes off. About a half hour later, the conductor comes back, and he, and he says, where's the lady who um, wanted to get off in Beaumont? We're almost there. And the guy kind of panics, and he said, well, you know, I counted five stops. I know that Beaumont is the fifth stop, so I told her to get off. And the conductor tells the lady, he said, well, the last stop was a, an emergency stop that we had to make for water for the steam engine. And there was nothing there. And so they eventually went back and they found that the lady and her uh, two kids had, had frozen to death. And, I mean, that's a, um, 
That's an example of bad instruction, isn't it? James says this, James chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Good instruction is important, isn't it? I remember um, I had a kind of a similar situation when I was in Russia. It was the early 90s, and um, I was in northeast Russia in Siberia, and it's extremely cold. The, the record cold there was like minus 96. The coldest I saw it get was only minus 74. Um, <laughs> that's cold. And, and what happens is there is this, um, they call it ice fog. All the moisture and the condensation in the air, it, it freezes, and it forms this fog that is so thick that you can't see anything. I remember one day I was, um, I was getting ready to cross the street, and I could hear a bus coming, and I could see the, the headlights of the bus kind of penetrating the lights, and it was going real slow. So after a pass, I stepped out to cross in the street, and I couldn't see anything, and I stepped into the side of the bus. And I couldn't see it. The bus was gray and everything else was. In it. So anyway, this ice fog was terrible. And so I had to do kind of the same thing as the guy on the train was doing. I had to count the stops. I knew from, from the, the, like the city center, it was so many stops until my bus stopped to get off where our flat was. I had to kind of count the stops. And one day, I don't remember, it was either he, he uh, made an extra stop or skipped a stop or something. But I, but I got off the bus at the wrong stop in this ice fog. And I, I couldn't see anything. And it's, I mean, without exaggerating, it can be life or death if you're trapped out there in this, you know, minus 40, minus 50 weather. And um, so I just, I picked a direction. And I started walking. And luckily, it was the right direction, obviously. I'm, I'm alive. But, um, but it can be kind of scary. And I think it kind of highlights, again, that thing that, that bad instructions are, are dangerous, particularly in, in matters of faith. And we as believers, if we, if we claim to be speaking on God's behalf, we better make sure that we are really hearing the voice of God. Acts chapter 15, verse 1, it says, But some brothers came down from Judea, and we're teaching the brothers, or some men came down from Judea, sorry. And we're teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now remember, we just finished up Acts chapter 14. Paul and Barnabas, they just got back from their first mission trip. They're back at their home church there in Antioch. And some of these guys show up, these, these Jews from, from Judea, it says from southern Israel. And they begin to have these little, little Bible studies with some of the believers. And, and they say, you know what? Jesus is good. Right? Jesus, he died on the cross for you. Believe in Jesus for your salvation. But you also need to keep the Jewish law. You also need to fulfill the law. You also need to be circumcised. If you really want to be a Christian... You have to become Jewish first. If you want to become a Christian, you have to fulfill the law. And we talked a little bit about this last week on Sunday. You know, and Luke, he seems to be bringing up same of these same themes over and over again. And we see that Paul dealt with this quite a bit. And in fact, that's we talked about a lot of a lot of the book of Galatians was written addressing this very issue. 
And, and Paul called these guys Judaizers or, or those of the circumcision. And, and they were always preaching Jesus plus. Jesus plus this. Jesus plus that. Jesus plus the law. Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus plus good works. And we see that all the time in, in, in false religions. You know, you look at the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses, and it's always Jesus plus. You look at Islam and Baha'i and all these things, it's always, it's always about adding. It's always about working for your salvation. And sadly, we as Christians, we, we don't escape that. We fall into the same trap a lot of times. We, we try to please God by being good enough. We try to please God by, by keeping the rules. And we try to impose that on other people. We try to get other people to keep the rules. You know, new people come to church and, and we try to clean them up. We try to fix them up. We, we give them a, a list of rules that they need to live by. You know, don't, don't drink, don't smoke, don't curse, don't watch these TV shows, don't listen to this music. And, and you know, some of those rules might be good. Some of those rules are good things. But as the expression goes, you can't clean a fish until after you catch it. Right? We don't need to clean people up on the outside. We don't need to, to, to make people look good on the outside. They don't need a, a, a makeover. They need Jesus. They need to be remade from the inside out. People don't need to, to be conformed to Christian standards. They need to be converted to Jesus Christ. People need the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives, not, not you and I giving them a list of rules. And Paul's talking about that in Ephesians 2. And again, I know we, we, this verse has come up quite a bit lately, but it's because it, it's so pertinent to our faith. Paul says, For grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of your own doing as a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Again, Paul says, look, our efforts don't add anything to our salvation. Our efforts aren't enough. They, they can never be enough. It's not Jesus plus. It's not grace plus. It's Christ alone where we find salvation. And after Paul and Barnabas had had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So Paul and Barnabas, they're, 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 they're arguing, they're debating with these Judaizers from, from Judea. And, and Paul, of course, right, he's a lawyer, he's a Pharisee. He's an expert on Jewish law. He's, he's not one that you want to get into an argument with. But they begin to, to discuss these things. And another translation says that they, they argued vehemently. They were fierce. They were, they were passionate in their arguments. And so this whole, this whole debate is going on. And the other leaders in the church like, you know, we, we don't know what the right answer is. You know, the Judaizers are talking and they say, wow, you guys make a really good argument. But then so does Paul. And he's, he's Paul. He's the apostle. We don't know what the right answer is. So they say, let's do this. Let's, let's send the problem upstream. Like good middle management, right? They, they let somebody else decide. They send it up to the bosses. And so Paul and Barnabas and some of the men from Antioch, 
they head up to the church in Jerusalem to, to talk with James and Peter and the other apostles and leaders in the church. So being sent on their way by the church, verse 3, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. So Paul and the guys, they head up to Jerusalem. And remember the first time that, that Barnabas had taken them into Jerusalem. Remember, nobody trusted Paul. Everybody was scared of him. This was, this was Paul the persecutor. This was Saul the, 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 the Christian slayer, right? This was, this was the guy who was wreaking havoc among the churches. And so when Paul first came in, everybody thought, yeah, this is a, this is a trap. This is a place, this is a setup. And so nobody really wanted to have anything to do with them. But this time, 15 years later, maybe 20 years later, you know, Saul heads back in, and, and, and people trust him at this point. And along the way, he's, he's stopping, and he's visiting the other churches, and he's encouraging them, and he's telling them all the, all the miraculous things that the Lord is doing, how, how the Gentiles are getting saved, and how the, the Holy Spirit is moving. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they declared all that God had done through them. Again, this time the people were glad to see Paul. They knew that he was for real, right? He'd proved it through his suffering, through his, through his service to the Lord. And the elders received him. And then Paul, he gives a report over everything that had gone on over the last decade. He tells them about how how the, the Gentiles were being saved, how the Holy Spirit was being manifested, about how all these new churches are being planted and, and disciples are being made and leaders are being raised up and how Jesus is ruling and reigning over his people. And so he gives this good report. But some of the believers, verse 5, who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them. And to order them to keep the law of Moses. And an interesting side note here, something we forget, I think. Right? We, we oftentimes, we, we read the scriptures and we, we see the priests and we see the Pharisees and we usually view them in a pretty negative light. Right? And, and largely they deserve it. Right? They were opposed to Jesus at, at every turn. But... It's important to know also that after the resurrection, many of the priests came to Christ. And we see here that among the believers in the church, there were also a number of Pharisees. There, there were those like Paul who were, who were lawyers, who were experts in the Jewish law, and apparently at some point they had come to a, a genuine faith in Jesus Christ. But these are men who had... Who had rooted their, their whole lives in tradition. And they had spent their whole life devoted to the law and the teaching of the law. And that was a, that was a hard thing for them to give up. And, and it seems like they're real Christians. It seems like they love Jesus. But they got off track for a little while here. They, they got infatuated with the rules and the regulations. And they say, look, the Gentiles want to be Christians? Cool, we're happy. We're glad about that. And that is a big change that we've seen so far in the Pharisees, right? That's a major change of heart for the Pharisees. You know, it, it, it's been taught 
that, that many of the Pharisees in Jesus' time believed that Gentiles, their only use was to fire the fuels of hell. And so this is a, this is a big step for these Pharisees to, to accept the Gentiles into the church at all. And they say, look, they can come, but they need to keep the law too. They can come, but they need to be circumcised. And again, Paul starts to argue with them vehemently. And the leaders here, they, they don't know what to do. So verse 6 says, The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. We see here godly men with opposing views meet together to talk and to pray and discuss their issues, and, and to find some resolution. And I think that that is a, a wonderful example for us today. I, um, I've been watching on social media a number of pastors who I, who I really respect and have enjoyed their teaching for years, who are really at each other's throats right now. You know, one will make some kind of a statement, and the other side will attack them, and then they'll rebut against that attack, and, and it's this big thing that's going on. And, and these, are, these are godly men. And I wonder how much of these conflicts and controversies could have been avoided if, if these men involved had just had hearts like the guys here in Jerusalem. If when an argument arose, if they would just get together and seek the Lord together and pray together and search the scriptures together. I wonder if they couldn't have found resolution through, through the leading of the Holy Spirit. And, and I think we have to look at this example here in verse 6 and, and, and number one, realize our shortcomings in that, but see the example that we need to follow there. Verse 7, And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So you can picture the scene here. There's a bunch of lawyers and a bunch of pastors all having a big debate. So you can imagine that it wasn't a short thing, right? It wasn't something that was over quickly. In fact, the New Living Translation says this, after a long discussion, and you can imagine that it was, finally Peter gets up. Peter's sick of it. He says, here's the deal, guys. He says, remember what happened to me? And he takes him back to the events of Acts chapter 8. He says, remember I was there in the home of Simon the Tanner there in Joppa, and Cornelius sent his servants, and I went with them, and I got to his house, and I began to preach, and as soon as I began to preach the word, the, the Holy Spirit was poured out, and they began speaking in tongues, and, and they were saved. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. And he says in verse 8, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between them and us, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So Peter says, look, you know, we, we keep looking at the outside, but we're missing 
what God is doing in people's hearts. We don't know the work that God is doing on the inside. And he says, it was God who confirmed that he accepted the Gentiles when he sent them the Holy Spirit. God showed us that he approved of the Gentiles just the way they were. And just like us, he cleansed them and he saved them. And then he says, in fact, there's no difference. There's no distinction between them and us. And the heart of what he's saying is this. There there really is no them and us. Once we're in Christ, we're in Christ. We're all the body of Christ. And I think that the church has gotten to a place where, where we can be very divisive sometimes. And I think the church could, could use this lesson today. And, you know, within, within the church, there's a lot of denominations, right? There's Baptists, and there's Nazarenes, and there's Assemblies of God, and there's, you know, whatever. And, and you know, there are, there are differences in what we believe. There are, are doctrinal differences. There are things that separate us. But we still share the same core beliefs, don't we? That Jesus was born of a virgin that he was sinless, that he died for our sins, that he rose again on the third day, that he's God incarnate, that he's God in the flesh. You know, we we, we need to be mindful that we're not attacking each other. We need to stop attacking each other and and, and join forces and and begin to attack the enemy, right? Stop wasting our, our ammunition on each other. And of course, I don't agree with all those denominations on everything, right? If I did, we'd be in Assemblies of God, right? Or we'd be a Baptist church, or we'd be Nazarenes instead of Calvary Chapel. And so we might not agree on everything, but you know what? We're brothers in Christ. And here's the deal. We are going to spend all of eternity together. There's not going to be the Baptist neighborhood in heaven. Right? There's not going to be the, the Pentecostal borough over here, you know, and the and Nazarene Heights up here. We're all going to be together. And so we might as well just start getting along now, shouldn't we? And, and that, doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that we have to agree on everything. You know, and sometimes it doesn't even mean that we have to work closely together. Sometimes our philosophies of ministry and our doctrines are, 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 are too far apart to work closely together. But that doesn't mean that we have to fight each other, right, and be opposed to one another. We're ultimately all on the same team. Now, to be clear, there are some who claim Christianity who are so far off and they're leading people astray that, that they do need to be opposed, Sometimes people are wrong, and they need to be stood up to. And that's what Paul does here. There's certainly a time when there's gross doctrinal error that needs to be confronted. But, you know, all the the little things, all the things that are non-essential, sometimes we just need to to let those things slide. You know, when we're talking about predestination or your foreknowledge and all those things. You know, you you can believe something different than I do. It's okay if you want to be wrong. You know, we can all agree to... Mike smiled. He got that. Um, We can still be friends, right? And Peter, he's still talking here in verse 10. And he says, Now, therefore, 
Why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we'll be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Notice what Peter says here. He says that these guys are opposing what God is doing. They're opposing the work of the Holy Spirit and and the, the ministry that he was doing among the Gentiles. And Peter says, why are you putting God to the test? The NLT says, why are you challenging God? Listen, we never be never want to be found in that position where we're challenging God, where we're opposing God, where we're, where we're trying to, to set up roadblocks and, and stop the work that he wants to do. You know why? Because he always wins. And if we're stand, found standing opposed to God, we're going to get knocked out of the way, frankly, and his will will be accomplished. And here's what happens. We end up missing out on the blessings of serving the Lord. The job still gets done. You just don't get to take part in it. And we never want to find ourselves in that position, opposing a movement of the Holy Spirit. We want to be open to what the Lord wants to do in us and through us. And again in verse 10 he says, Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test? by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. Peter says, why are you you burdening these Gentiles? Why are you trying to make the Gentiles keep the law? Look, Peter says, let's be honest. Your ancestors couldn't keep the law. You can't keep the law. We've all failed Why do we want to try to make the Gentiles do something that we ourselves can't even do? And and here's what you need to understand about the law. The law was designed to make us fail. Purposely. That was the intent of the law. Paul explains that in Galatians. He explains how the whole point of the law, the whole reason for the law's existence was so that we would fail at keeping the law. Well, why would God do that? Why, why, would, why would God give us the law? Why would he set us up to fail? See, the law, the Ten Commandments, the whole Levitical law, it was perfect. And it commanded perfection from us as well. It gave us a standard to live up to that we could never live up to. And the whole point of the law, Paul says, was to show us that we don't measure up. The whole purpose of the law was to reveal how sinful we are and how desperately we need Jesus, how bad we need salvation, how we need a redeemer. And and Paul talks about that in verse 24 of Galatians chapter 3. And I like how the King James translates it. It says, Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. 
For ye are all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul says the law was our schoolmaster. Uh, the New King James says the law was our tutor. Right? It was designed to bring us to Christ. It was designed to, to reveal our sin and our desperate need for a Savior. But he says after we come to faith, we no longer need that schoolmaster. And so Paul says, listen, church, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither male nor female, neither slave or free. He says we are Christians, we're in Christ. We're not black, we're not white, we're not Asian, we're not Hispanic, we're not rich, we're not poor, we're not middle class, we're not girls, we're not boys. He says we're disciples of Christ. And Paul isn't saying that those things aren't relevant. He's not saying that those things don't matter. But what he's saying is this. Those things are no longer our identity. Right? Being rich or being poor or being male or female or black or white or liberal or conservative or Republican or Democrat or, or whatever it is, a northerner or a southerner or whatever it is. Those, those things aren't our identity. First and foremost, our identity is in Christ. And in the eyes of the Father, we're identified through Christ, right? There's not Indians and Africans and Asians and Europeans. There's those who are saved and those who aren't. Those who are covered by the blood and those who aren't. Those who are washed by the blood and those who aren't. That's the division that the Father sees. So Peter here, he says, listen, we ourselves were unable to keep the law. That's why we needed Jesus. Why, why should we expect them to keep this thing that we're unable to keep? And remember, Paul said last week, saw last week in the um, opening verses of Galatians 3, he said, oh, foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Do you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? Paul says, who has bewitched you? Who has cast a spell on you? He says, you, you begun in the Spirit. You're this, this Christian life started in the Spirit. You think you're going to finish it in the flesh? This, this whole thing of salvation was a work of the Holy Spirit in your life. You, you think that you're going to complete it by, by your own efforts, by your own holiness, by your own attempts at righteousness? He says, who has fooled you guys into thinking these things? Who is fooling you into thinking that, that you can complete the Christian life and your own strength and in your own effort? 
You know, to, to quote our new president, no, that's not the quote. Um, come on, man. You know, like, so that's what Peter is saying. Come on, man. <laughs> you know the thing. <laughs> I don't know. I better stop. Um, he says in verse 11, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. He says, look, we're all saved by Jesus, by God's grace. You weren't saved by the law. It was God's unmerited, unearned kindness and favor that saved you. It wasn't by keeping the law that you were saved. It wasn't because you're circumcised that you were saved. It wasn't the cut of the knife that saved you. It was the cross. It was the blood that saved you. It was Calvary that saved you. And all the assembly fell silent, verse 12. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So Peter, he finishes making his point and he sits down. And Paul stands up. And he begins recounting all the, the amazing things that the Lord did through him. He probably recounts that, he, that, that occasion where he was stoned and, and was left for dead and, and came back to life. And, and he's talking about the miracles that were performed and, and how, how Simon Bar-Jesus was, was struck blind and how the Holy Spirit was moving and, and how churches were being planted and, and people were giving their lives to Jesus. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. This is interesting to note here. This is James speaking, right? And this isn't the apostle James. This isn't James, the, the brother of John, right? This is James, the half-brother of Jesus. What would it take to convince you that your brother was actually God incarnate? Or your little sister was God incarnate. It would take a lot, wouldn't it? Remember Jesus' family, early in his ministry, they thought that he was crazy, didn't they? You know, they were trying to, they were trying to shut him up. And at one point the brothers are mocking him. But after the resurrection, that all changed, didn't it? After they saw the resurrected Jesus, they knew. So much so that, that James here, who, who previously had opposed Jesus and called him crazy, ends up becoming the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And James here, he addresses the group. And he says, look, Peter was there the first time. He saw the Spirit move on these guys who, who weren't Jews. 
And then the Lord sent out Paul, and Paul saw it too. And he says the reality is these things shouldn't surprise us because the scripture said that it was going to happen. And then James goes on there to quote Amos chapter 9. And he talks about how all of humanity would have a chance to believe in the son of David. All those who are called, both the Jews and the Gentiles. In verse 19 he says, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. He says, here's my decision. Here's what we're going to do. We're not going to put extra burdens on those who come to faith. We're not going to make them get circumcised and keep the law. They don't have to look like us and act like us and dreck like us and talk like us and smell like us to be Christians. Here's what we're going to do. He says in verse 20, but we should write them, write to them to abstain from things that are polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So this is what James says. He says, in light of the fact that there are Jews in every city, in light of the fact that there are Jews everywhere, there are four things that we're going to ask the Gentile believers not do. We're going to ask them not to eat food offered to idols, not to engage in sexual immorality, not to eat meat from strangled animals, and not to drink blood. Seems like a fair list, doesn't it? It's an interesting list. You know, and, and I want to point out that, that all of these things that he lists there, not all of them are necessarily commands from God for the church today. This was what James thought they should do. And, and let me unpack that for a second. Right? James is coming from a very Jewish background, right? No real experience with Gentile believers. He's just sort of going off of what he knows about Gentiles in general. And so the first thing he says, you know, not to eat food offered to idols. It was very common in the Gentile world for animals, for your, for your livestock to be taken and they would be sacrificed to whatever pagan deity they worshipped in your area. Zeus or Aphrodite or Apollo or whatever. And after they sacrificed that animal, they would slaughter it, and they would butcher it, and they would take it down to the meat market and sell it. And so, James says, for the sake of the Jews, don't eat meat that's been offered to idols. And second, he says, don't engage in sexual immorality. That word in the Greek is porneo. And it's sort of a, 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 a junk drawer term, a general term. It's where we get the English word pornography also. But, but it really, it means any, any sexual activity outside of marriage. And it's likely that as James is writing this, he's, he's referring to something specific here. It was very common and the pagan temples in those days for, for pagan worship to include sex 
with the temple prostitutes. And so that's probably what, what James is referring to here. He's saying, don't engage in that when you're worshiping God. And the third and the fourth thing, don't eat strangled animals and don't consume blood. They're sort of the same idea. You know, the law, the Levitical law said to bleed out an animal when you kill it, to drain the blood because the life was in the blood. And pagans would commonly collect the blood of the animals they were sacrificed and they would drink it as part of their, as part of their, their worship service. So James says, look, these, these four things are very offensive to Jews. And since the Jews are everywhere, since they're dispersed in the Gentile community, in order to not unnecessarily offend them, don't do these things. And of course, the, the sexual immorality part, right, don't have sex in pagan temples, that probably wasn't happening in the Gentile churches. They probably had enough of the scripture to know not to do that, right? That principle is taught clearly throughout scripture. The Bible is clear that, that sexual activity is to be confined to a husband and a wife, a man and a woman who are lawfully wed, right? Anything outside of that is outside of God's plan for your life. It's outside of God's will. The other three things, however, meat offered to idols, drinking blood, the strangled meat. Those were cultural things that James was requesting so as to not unnecessarily offend the Jewish people there, to not stop the Jews from believing. And Paul talks about this principle in 1 Corinthians 8. He says in verse 4, and we're going to read all the way through verse 13. He says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and there is no God but one. For although there are many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom, all, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, he will not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat foods offered to idols. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Paul says, listen, idols are nothing. They're not real. 
So eating meat offered to an idol isn't a big deal because the idol isn't real. He says, but if my eating meat that was offered to idols is offensive to you, then I won't eat meat anymore. He says, the salvation of lost souls is more important than my personal freedoms. And I think that that's an important lesson for us. Paul says, look, we don't want to do anything that while it might not be sinful, it could stop other people from coming to faith. Now, is it a sin for you to drink a glass of cow blood? It's gross. It's unhealthy. But I suppose as long as you're not drinking it as an act of worship to some demon god, it's probably not a sin, right? Right? If you, if you eat a chicken that is strangled and the blood wasn't drained out of it, you're probably not going to go to hell. But these particular things were very offensive to the Jews. And so James told the Gentile believers, he said, look, don't do these things so you don't unnecessarily cause the Jews to stumble. Now listen, living as a believer, being a follower of Jesus Christ, in and of itself is going to be offensive to some people. The gospel message is offensive to some people. And that's just the simple reality of it. Some people are going to hate you just because you're a Christian. Some people are going to hate you just because you identify with Christ. And that's not what James is talking about here. What James is talking about is not unnecessarily offending people, not causing people to stumble. What he's talking about is being willing to sacrifice your own rights in order to help other people come to Christ. He's not just talking about our living in obedience to the gospel. He's talking about being concerned enough about other people that we will willingly choose to limit our own freedoms. Right? And that can manifest itself in a lot of ways. You know, I personally... You know, I listen to secular music sometimes. You know, there's some that's pretty vulgar and I don't. There's some that doesn't bother me. I grew up a Christian. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't have an impact on me. But sometimes that same music can affect other people a different way. Do I have a right to listen to that? Sure. But should I listen to it around people who struggle with that? No. Or, 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 or drinking can be the same thing. Is it wrong to have a drink as a believer? No. But if you're hanging out with somebody who's a former alcoholic, should you be drinking around them? You have freedom to, but it's probably not a good idea, right? It's probably not going to benefit that brother. That's what Paul's talking about here. He says that sometimes we need to impose rules on ourselves in order to help other people. You know, I, I've heard people refer to that as, you know, as personal legalisms, right? You know, legalism is bad when you make rules and impose them on other people. But if you're, if you're limiting your freedoms in order to benefit somebody else, 
that's a good thing. You know, we need to do what we can do to help others come to Christ. And a circle sort of back to James chapter 3, verse 1 that we talked about. Remember, he said, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. It's sort of the same idea. There, there, there's this, this sort of this principle that, that we're accountable to God for our behavior in regards to how it impacts those around us. If our words or our attitudes or our actions lead others astray, or if they stop people from coming to Christ, I believe that there's, there's a judgment that comes with that. And I think that we need to be careful and that we need to be found being good witnesses. We need to be found rightly dividing the word of truth, as Paul tells Timothy. We need to be found reflecting the love of God to those around us. People don't need a list of rules and regulations to live by. People need Jesus. And people need room for the Holy Spirit to work in their lives. And he uses us to do that. So do it. Be his witness in this world. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for, for your word, for your grace, Lord. And we pray that you would help us to be found being good witnesses, being good servants, Lord. And on that final day when we stand before you, we would hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. So we pray that you would embolden us, and that you would empower us, that you would fill us with your spirit, Lord. And we could just leave this place ministering your gospel. We pray that in your name, Jesus. Amen.